0: Hello, space lovers, lawyers, and listeners. Welcome back to Pod Ad Astra, advancing the analysis, development, and adoption of human rights across outer space for the benefit of humanity. My name is Alison Decker, and I'm a legal advisor to Just Ad Astra, a nonprofit pioneer project looking to bring human rights to the stars. For our seventh episode, we are delighted to welcome Mr. Ryan Duffy, a founding editor of Payload Space, a daily newsletter covering both space business and policy. Ryan, welcome to Pod at Astra. We look forward to hearing from you about the exponential growth of satellites being launched into space and how these new satellites can support human rights back here on Terra Firma.
1: Hey, Allison, thank you so much for having me. That is quite, quite the intro, and it's great to be here.
0: All right, so first off, I'm a big fan of Payload. It is one of the first emails I read every morning. And I was also an early doctor because I remember when Payload only came out once a week. But for our listeners who may not be as familiar with Payload, can you tell them a little bit more about what Payload is?
1: Sure thing. So Payload is a digital media company and we cover the business and policy of space. And as you've alluded to, we started out as a weekly newsletter. Written by our, our co-founders Mo Islam and Ari Lewis. Now it's written by myself and Rachel Zisk, who is a, a reporter who joined us a few months ago. And I came on board a few—I I came on board in September to kind of lead things on the editorial side of the house and flip the switch from a weekly spend cadence, as you alluded to, to a daily one. And I just want to say uh, thank you for for reading. You know, that that truly is the mark of an early adopter for us, because the 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 weekly newsletter was kind of the minimum viable product, and the, the daily news has been going really well so far. I think when I came on board, we were at around a thousand subscribers. Subscribers now we are at, at last count, thirty five hundred plus. And yeah, last thing I would say, payload is a newsletter for now. We think kind of think of ourselves as a, as a newsletter first company because there is there is more more to come but yeah right now the flagship and the only product is the the daily newsletter
0: and before you worked at payload you had started the emerging tech vertical at morning brew so why did you make the jump from there to to the sort of new startup of payload
1: yeah good question so at a high level i would say there's quite quite a few similarities more more than my and it's beneath the eye. Uh, Morning Brew was, when I joined, was then a media startup with a, a newsletter-first approach, a similar newsletter-first approach. And I was an early employee who joined to launch our emerging tech vertical. So that covered, you know, self-driving, electric vehicles, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the buzzwordy things in a textured, informative, and engaging way. And then the newsletter was, the, the main product even as we as we expanded. And uh I mean to put it put it to put it simply, we were we were writing about the metaverse in uh in 2020. So we were trying to kind of we we were you know we were we were thinking ahead. But it grew into Emerging tech grew into a a big media vertical, not just a the newsletter for over three hundred thousand subscribers and four dedicated employees before I left. And I decided to leave just because I wanted to get back into the earlier stages of the media company, kind of in the trenches and go deeper on a vertical rather than spreading myself thin, I would say, relatively speaking, across so many tech technologies and industries. That's not to say that that space is is, you know, super, super niche or anything like that, but my kind of coverage portfolio in, in that last job, was space was, was one thing, but it was not the only thing. And yeah, I just had an incl- inclination to, to go quite a bit deeper.
0: And I think probably for all of our listeners, they understand that because all of us are really interested in space and the sort of race to space that we're re-experiencing right now. What, what got you interested in space initially?
1: Well, I'm sure, like so many of your listeners, I was fascinated uh, by the cosmos since I was a kid. And as I mentioned, it was part of what I was writing about and covering at Morning Brew. Uh, in that role, I had the good fortune of of interviewing Jeanette Epps, who's a NASA astronaut, and a few other members of NASA leadership in in New York. So there was there was definitely some kind of professional engagement there, but I just had an inclination to go deeper. I think that, I think the space is at this really exciting in a lot of ways, exciting kind of inflection point. There's obviously, as we'll talk about later in this conversation, I'm sure, you know, there are some concerning trends too, but, but I, I really think, you know, the 2020s will be such a momentous decade for, for space in so many ways. And so I decided to make the jump, and so far, so good. I'm feeling feeling really good, great about it.
0: Now, I know Payload has published a few pieces about satellite proliferation and even posed the open question, how many satellite constellations is too many satellite constellations? Can you tell us a little bit about the growth in number of satellites in low-Earth orbit in recent years?
1: Yeah. So... The Union of Concerned Scientists does a really good job of maintaining a, a database and, and semi-regularly updating it about operational satellites that are that are on orbit uh, around and above Earth. And there are over forty-five hundred right now that they're, they're they're tracking. But there, you know, there are a lot of different ways that. you this. I think that what's what's most interesting, you know, if, if we if we kind of go deeper into the sectional data, twenty eight hundred, just under twenty eight hundred of those are U.S. and of those, you know, rounding up, twenty four hundred are commercial. And I think that the proliferation of Commercially owned and operated satellites is the the big the big change that we're seeing, and it's happening really quickly. And if you know, if the current launch cadence of a lot of the the dominant constellation operators or really promising ones, it, you know, if you extrapolate right on that, and if you look at all the paperwork that's being filed. But the F- FCC, this is a trend that shows no real sign of abating. And just to go, just to add one more data point, I guess, communications satellites were responsible for over 80% of all the satellites that were launched last year. And then remote sensing came in at, I think, around 11 or 12%. But yeah, there, there are these... There, there are these companies that have found workable business models in, in, in earth observation, certainly in remote sensing. And we'll see with, we'll see with uh satellite kind of internet broadband, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that the complete inversion of who is, who owns and, and, and is operating, you know, the, the, the most satellites in, in orbit and, and Leo specifically, I think that that's, that's a, a, a very notable change, and it's not like it happened overnight, but it, it is it is quite kind of a shift from a decade ago or two decades ago, um, so, yeah.
0: And, and that's such a good point, is that we've seen commercialization of space really sort of change the big actors in space in a lot of ways, because now we are seeing a ton of private launches. um, And we're also seeing large constellations of satellites being put up, such as Starlink and others, that are really sort of changing how we view a lot of what is happening in space. Um, You know, I know Payload also reported on the recent Russian ASAT anti-satellite missile test, which destroyed a non-functional Soviet era satellite from the 1980s. And the fallout from this explosion, as Payload noted, um, has forced the International Space Station to make several maneuvers to avoid the debris. And of course, I want to mention that Russia isn't the only country to ever test ASAT technology. China conducted a test in 2007, which created over 40,000 pieces of debris. Um, how do you think this increase in satellites and debris is going to impact future space missions and the low earth space environment?
1: Yeah, that's a timely question that a lot of folks are, are thinking about just because you know, it's so top of mind given the headlines that we've been seeing. I should add too, in, in fairness, you know, uh, Rus- Russia's space agency said on Friday that the, the ISS had to maneuver because there was a uh, spent uh, U.S. rocket from uh, three decades ago or so that 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 was you know going to going to be too close for comfort. So it's uh, as as you point out, you know, it's not just one nation and and, and uh, I mean, Soviets and then the Russians, but also the like the Americans have have make make up you know quite quite a lot of the debris that are up there. But I think that. I think that's what what's most concerning is just in in a worst case scenario you know it could render the domain or just be a little bit more specific specific orbits it it could make them unusable or or very difficult to use and i I actually didn't have i cut this from a a newsletter a couple weeks ago when we were covering this but it kind of struck me that space debris can be it can be thought of like climate change in a certain way you know in the worst case scenario in the, the, the two degrees Celsius warming that we often hear is a, a benchmark you know that we, we don't want to hit that's what we want to avoid at all costs that's because that could going 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 past that could trigger these 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 feedback loops on on earth that that interact and and you know create further cascading Changes um, to to our ecosystem or environment that we don't want, and the the Kessler syndrome is is an idea or scenario that that posits a similar, I'd say, like causal chain of events where when there's this, you know, it, if if debris and junk in in low Earth orbit keep colliding, it increases the risk of Further collisions, and if we reach a certain point, the the theory posits—you know, this is theoretical. Hopefully, it will always be theoretical. But that, that there could just be these this, this chain of of cascading collisions that that exponentially increase the amount of space debris, and and like I said earlier, would just make uh, orbits unusable, and that would obviously be. Very bad, that's something that we want to avoid at all costs,
0: yeah, we don't want to end up making it impossible for us to go to space now that we're we're more able to go to space right right exactly. um, you know and and we are talking a little bit about all these negative impacts to space itself, but are there also potential negative impacts back on Earth from this increased amount of debris that we're seeing?
1: I think that. You know, when the U.S. has also done its own anti-satellite tests, uh, mo- most recently in in the, the late two thousands, and they said that they were doing it to to protect uh, Earth, to protect humans from a, a a dead spy satellite that was that was kind of reentering with a lot of uh, hydrazine propellant that was really dangerous, and uh, in certain cases with with heavy enough objects, I guess that's a risk. But I think that a lot of the debris that that we can track and then the smaller pieces that we can't really track, That a lot of that would burn up on um, atmospheric kind of re-entry. But the, the big risk, of course, is if those unthinkable sorts of scenarios that we were just discussing, if that happens, then a lot of the beneficial use cases, like space, the, the way I would describe it is the, the space to earth sort of use cases and benefits, those could go away. And so that would be, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of Earth observation, a lot of remote sensing, and and then in, in the coming years, all of these kind of communications constellations. There are obviously other, if, if we were to somehow lose, lose, you know, GPS satellites and and that sort of thing, which are in different orbits, that that would also be really bad, but I'm kind of specifically referring uh, to to a lot of the spacecraft
0: that are in low earth orbit right and and that's a that's a good point we don't often think about how much we are and how much we will be in the future relying on a lot of these satellites that are being put up there because they do um, give us direct benefits back on earth and we don't always think that we are using space technology when we are Mm -hmm. (laughs) um So, we've talked, (laughs) So it segues into my next question, because we've talked a lot about some of the bad things that can result from unchecked satellite proliferation, but let's talk a little bit more about some of those good things that satellites can do for us back on Earth. Um, So, I know you've been mentioning some of the Earth observation satellites, and I think one of the the best known ones is probably Landsat 9, which was launched just a few months ago, and it's designed to monitor the health and the state of the Earth. And... Can you can you maybe fill us in a little bit on why this information is so important and how satellites like Landsat 9 can help us combat climate change and, and protect our environment?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So uh, this is kind of a timely update. Landsat 9 was the the star of the show at the first N- National Space Council meeting for the current uh, Biden-Harris administration, their first meeting last week. Uh, Week I don't know when this so December first and they mentioned the name quite a few times because using your remote sensors and earth earth observation satellites that's a really big priority of the current White House as it relates to you know adapting to climate change and ideally sort of mitigating mitigating climate change. And you know, just understanding, broadly speaking, how the how the planet is is changing. And there there are so many, so many use cases. There there's so many sort of there's so much visibility into our planet that is enabled by uniquely enabled by satellites, and that can be anything from mapping soil moisture content to kind of quantifying crop conditions to Fighting wildfires, measuring sea level rise—you know—it goes on and on and on. And I, yeah, I think that to to bring to bring things kind of full circle, the satellite and the space domain, the, it's a huge asset in uh, our fight against climate change.
0: One of the things we often hear about within the space community is that private space exploration is going to benefit everyone back on Earth. And and obviously we've talked about some of the different ways that satellites can do that. Um, And while we have seen space-based tech innovations improve life for many people who are never going to go to space, can you think of any other examples other than this uh, Landsat 9 where private space satellites have helped us um, other than of course making it easier for people to access Facebook or check their work email while out in the middle of nowhere.
1: It's a good question. I think that there are I think that for a lot of sectors of the space economy, the nascent sort of, you know, commercial commercial space economy, they are enabled by they're, they're made possible by dropping launch costs and that's, you know, there, there, there are a handful of, of companies that are really, mainly SpaceX that are really shaking that up and, and driving that. I think that it's interesting to think how some of the, this, the private space exploration companies, how they might use that, those revenue, that, that revenue and, you know, the cash flow from selling tickets to cross subsidize other, you know, other areas of their business that that might benefit everyone, and I think that that is happening right now with with Starlink, and Starlink and the other the various other internet constellations. Those definitely you know, have the potential to extend access to to basic twenty first uh, century kind of services that we take for granted, and. Even at a even at, you know, step stepping back a little, there's one company, Link, that I've I interviewed um, recently, and they just dem- demonstrated kind of two way connectivity with between a satellite and a phone without any sort of special terminal or transmitter. I think that's really interesting because just by extending SMS functionality to Pockets of the world and, and millions and millions of new phones that wouldn't otherwise be connected to a cellular network. First, you know, the first order that that could really help with with emerge, emergencies and eventually even just SMS. You know, I think that that could that could in, in many countries help extend economic opportunities. But I think I think that it, it's climate change in space again to, to draw some similarities. It's hard to. Picture the benefits, uh, the costs, the risks, and everything, and conceptualize that on on a on a really tangible level. In many cases, you know, it's it, they're they're more abstract, abstract. You know, in case of climate change, like complex, wicked problem. But I I personally think you know I'm I I've always intellectually in in school is really interested in, in climate change and. And, and climate change mitigation and so i i mean i think that that is the the overarching theme i think that we we have a lot more visibility into extreme weather events and the changing planet that we wouldn't otherwise have and just not having that sort of that ground truth from from space we didn't have that uh, i don't I, I think that we would probably be in a in a worse worse pli- place in this fight against
0: change. And I, I think that's an interesting point point thing that you're pointing out in that having that sort of increased visibility into different sectors. I know there's been talk about using commercial satellite imagery to to monitor and even investigate human rights abuses and violations of international humanitarian law because we're just able to see things That we wouldn't have been able to see before, or you're able to be able to communicate in ways that we just weren't able to communicate previously, or have more of an instantaneous response. So I think, I think it's very interesting to see the different ways that we can use this, this you know, what we so almost think is sort of like trivial, but can actually use it to really make lasting changes back on Earth just by creating this ability to access and to see more things in general.
1: Certainly. So that's something that I didn't mention earlier, but some satellites have been used to by 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 nonprofits and media organizations to and, and governments to, to you know Catch in Greece to catch tax evasion, and and, and a, a more somber note to to identify human rights abuses or undetected missile sites, and there there's the list goes on and on and on. But I think that there that there is this really beneficial aspect to that increased visibility. That said, I think I think it could cut both ways. You know, if you could, if you had enough. Deep learning, enough data, and you know, sophisticated enough algorithm, and you could basically just understand everything at a granular resolution across time and space. That, in the wrong hands, you know, that could be worrying from a, a surveillance perspective. But I, I, I don't, I don't think that that that's you know, I don't think that that's the primary. Vehicle through which these these satellites, these constellations, and this data are being used. And I, I should also mention for for Landsat and a lot of the other government operated uh, satellites, EO satellites. One one of the really great things about those is that they produce public data sets, and it's not proprietary. And there's and so I think that that really that really helps too because. It, you know it, it's, it's expensive to operate a, a commercial constellation it's expensive to operate a government constellation they have slightly different goals but yeah i mean i i just always come back to i think that i think the the all the satellites all the, the remote sensing satellites that are really focused on the space to earth benefits I, 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 it's it's interesting because I, I don't think that the general public is, is that aware of all of the good that they do because inherently you know they're out of sight, out of mind. And when I think space does capture, you know, the, the zeitgeist or the public, you know, psyche, I, I think it's, it it tends to be it tends to be these these ambitious large space flight missions or launches. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I love a great launch as much as the next person, but, uh, but but yeah, I think I think the like the layer beyond that, what those, what what the you know what the Falcon 9s are, are bringing to space and all that is is really interesting. And I do hope that I hope that the the general public, you know, over over these years, the space becomes bigger and you know, a bigger part, a, big, a bigger economy, and there's just these new applications and services that are made possible. I hope that uh, people are able to realize that.
0: And, and
1: yeah, we just shouldn't take it for granted.
0: And, and that's true. We do, we do sort of focus on sort of the notoriety or the exciting launches, like launching Captain Kirk into space versus launching a satellite that's going to give us information about climate change. You know, one of those got a lot more news than the other. And, and, and that's sort of, how that often unfolds and we don't hear about all of these other things that are going on and the advancements that are coming from it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking, you know, given the lack of cooperation among many of the leading spacefaring states um, and the inability of the international community to really control or limit what is being launched into space or whether more ASAT tests will be conducted, what role do you think private companies can play in protecting our low earth orbit environment for generations to come?
1: That is, that's a million dollar question. I, I think that could be its, its own podcast. In and of its, I mean, actually probably its own day long conversation, but, and I, my, my sort of educational training was all international relations. So this is intellectually a very, very fascinating question that's it's near and dear to my heart because it's at the nexus of, of what I do and what I w- love studying and thinking about. I think that private companies, I, you know, I would say just being proactive and proactive about just using sort of the space domain responsibly, being responsible steward and they're, Maneuvering, you know, if you if 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 you have a satellite that went up re- more recently and it has a thruster and you have more propellant and you know, there there's 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 a conjunction there's a chance of a, a possible collision, just moving out of the way and then at the end of the, the, the life uh, deorbiting or taking your your spacecraft to a graveyard orbit. I think that. Being cracked without all of that would would help a lot. I do think that there's also the, the bottom line implication for all of this, which is that again, if those unthinkable scenarios come to pass and a bunch of your satellites are going to get taken out by debris, no one wants that because that just ruins the party for everyone. So at the end, you know, at the end of the day, there is sort of this that. Uh, the, those those dire situations hanging over everyone's head, um, but I you know I think on the private sector side, taking taking a, a holistic view of of the, the the frontier domain that is space, not just you know treating it as uh, an explo- exploitable resource or as something to be you know polluted once you've once your your, your satellite has has run its useful life so that it doesn't end up becoming a tragedy of the commons type situation but all that to say i do think to a large extent the buck stops with governments for the licenses they give out liabilities damages super supervising their industry and you know coming to the table and 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 signing and adhering to these treaties and pushing forward with with you know ho- hopefully binding multilateral uh, agreement. What the what I'll be watching really closely in the coming years is whether sort of legally, if if if, if countries can agree to some sort of mechanism to incentivize debris removal. But I think that would be very helpful for a bunch of self-explanatory reasons.
0: And and there are a lot of private companies that are are working on this space debris problem and trying to figure out ways to kind of clean things up or. Or move satellites to different mm-hmm. orbits. Are are there any um, projects in particular that you're aware of that you think are particularly promising?
1: Well, I think I think Privateer is interesting and it's very buzzy because it was it was co-founded by Steve Wozniak. But I recently spoke with more of a jaw, who's he also I, I live in Austin. He lives in Austin, and it was a, it was a really really kind of stimulating and, and engaging conversation because he spoke about how the, you know, the biggest risk up there is just not, not knowing what's going on. So that that's their, that's their whole thing is, is hitting satellites into orbit and, and knowing, you know, just, just establishing better sort of space situa- situational awareness, which, which can lead to better traffic management and, the thinking goes that that can mitigate the prob- meaningfully mitigate the probability of, of any of these, these sorts of collisions and then there's there's a whole there's a slew of other companies and, and startups that are working on a lot of interesting satellite servicing deorbiting transport schemes but I think that I think that their their prospects look a lot better they get a lot better if there are those those legal uh, mandates or guidelines or sort of incentives to to compel uh, a nation or, or 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 to compel a nation to compel it's 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 companies that operate within its jurisdictions to move things out of the way and just kind of you know take care of, of their junk if the junk is is problematic in some sort. Some way or
0: another. well I think that's all the time we have right now thank you again Duffy for chatting with us about payloads satellites debris and how satellites can be used to fight climate change and help all of those back all of those of us back here on planet earth
1: yeah thanks again for having us and it's been great to chat I'm sure we could keep going for for hours and hours but uh yeah it's been a been a real treat
0: For our curious listeners out there eager to learn more about human rights issues in outer space, you can reach us via the project's Twitter handle, at JustAdAstra. For our future episodes, PodAdAstra will seek to engage with leading experts across the fields of international space law. Human rights and space policy, including the environment, gender equality, space heritage, justice and liberty, humanities, and cybersecurity. Thanks again for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of Pod at Astra.